it's going to be 92 degrees and humid on Tuesday. Summer is here. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Did you all enjoy the beautiful weather that we had Saturday and Sunday before we come into the swelter? Oh, yeah. It was perfect. Yeah, I wish every day could be like we had this weekend. It was great. All right, let's get going. Who are the people arrested so far in Cleveland's May 30th riots and what are they accused of doing? There's a whole ragtag group of people that have been put out in front of the public by law enforcement officers uh, about the how there are outsiders involved. Chris Ranowski, we have plenty of details on who these people were. And then we told the story of one of them after talking to him that made it sound like maybe he's not a criminal at all. So let's go through it. Let's start with the progressive field people. Who are they and what are they accused of doing? So police uh, arrested, this was just shortly before the curfew lifted on Friday. So early morning Friday, they arrested five people trying to break into Progressive Field. Uh, they they were 18 and under, uh, three teens who were under the age of 18 and two 18-year-olds. And they were apparently trying to get into the field. The security guards threw the lights on and the cops showed up. And they arrested them. They had fire starters and a fire extinguisher and some and some signs that they had in their car. And, you know, the police sort of held them up as an example of the kind of property damaging troublemakers that were, you know, part of the the problem at the May 30th uh, protest. So so, and this was this was almost a week after the protest. But this one this one seems real. Right. We don't have any reason to suspect this is some kind of trumped up thing. I mean, it sounds like the the security progressive field saw these guys called in the police and they got them before they could do any damage. Right. And, and, and yeah, so they're, I mean, they, they held them up as the example of the curfew works. Like that was their whole line of thinking on Friday when they announced these arrests. It was in the middle of the curfew though. And they came in (laughs) in the middle of the night. So it's like the curfew didn't work. All right. Then there were a couple of people from Pennsylvania who came in who were painted as bad guys during the riot. What were they what were they accused of? How did they get caught? So they got caught. They were stopped by police and then they eventually came back and arrested them. The the night of the protest, they were found they had a handgun and supplies to make Molotov cocktails, according to a federal complaint that was unsealed Friday morning just ahead of a press conference that the mayor and the FBI and the U.S. attorney attended. And and they were sort of held out as the example of the quote-unquote outsiders that came here to start trouble at a largely peaceful protest that happened on May 30th. Okay, now the first guy that, that was kind of held out as a bad guy was somebody that was reported to have had a, an incendiary device that ended right. up being portrayed as a Molotov cocktail. Talk about that one, because after we talked to him, I had serious doubts about whether he was a bad guy at all. Right. So earlier in the week, we had started to hear the word incendiary device being thrown around by the police chief. And um, the first arrest that they announced uh, on this, and we kind of ferreted this guy out a little bit, that it was this guy was found with a nail polish bottle, uh, nail polish remover bottle with a uh, what they called a wick, um, what he said was a paper towel stuffed on the top of it. Well, after we ran a story about him and we didn't name him or anything, his attorney contacted us and said, 
you know, he would actually like to explain what happened that night. And, and his explanation sounds reasonable when you step back and you look at this sort of in a broad sense. He, he said that he was, that his car actually got vandalized and he and his friends looked up how to get paint off a car. He said somebody spray painted yellow on his car and nail polish remover and WD-40 is what they bought at a family dollar out in Parma that police actually visited after, you know, they started looking into him. And, and then he said that he was headed back downtown to his father's apartment and he was getting bounced back and forth from various checkpoints after they put down the curfew and he couldn't get downtown. And, And so he said that he, at one point, pulled onto the wrong lane of the highway and, and that's when police picked him up and he ended up spending three days in jail. And, and I mean, as somebody who's worked here long enough, I mean, we have a lot of people who do pull onto the wrong way of the highway. And this kid said he was sort of getting increasingly frustrated by his inability to get back downtown to his dad's apartment. He was like, I'm hungry. I'm, you know, it's early in the morning. I'm trying to get home. And in his frustration, he, he did something wrong and they put him in jail for it. And then they found this bottle of nail polish remover, which is very flammable. You know, let's, let's not underscore that. Yeah. But it he, could be he, used as a mild but he, cocktail. Yeah. But he said he stuffed a paper towel in it because he lost the cap when he was cleaning. And it all, I mean, look, it all sounds very reasonable. Like there's not a part of that story that doesn't sound like, like, okay, that's a very reasonable explanation for what happened here. And 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 maybe in the excitement of everything, he he appeared like a, a you know, a terrifying right. human being in, in the eyes right. of law enforcement. All right. Let's do one more. Anthony Body, who has arrested for curfew violations in Cleveland. And really, in many ways, this is the most outrageous arrest that we've heard of out of out of all of this tumult. Uh, talk a little bit about who he is. Uh, why he was arrested and why I describe it as an outrage. Right. So Anthony was, he was a member of the oversight commission for our police reform effort here under the federal consent decree that the police department signed with the, the, or the city signed with the department of justice. And after he sort of left that, he, he, he now works for an organization called the bail project, which they're a nationwide organization that is sort of trying to draw attention to the issue of cash bail and, and trying to eliminate, um, you know, the, the, the history right. of people being stuck in jail for, you know, low bonds that they can't. Right. So he works, he works right. out of the justice center. So right. what he works out of the him? justice center and he also works downtown and he's, or he lives downtown. And, and so he said that he was, he was, you know, returning home, I believe from trying to bail people out of jail and he got stopped and then he was headed back again and he got stopped again and they arrested him and so you know here he is trying to bail people out of jail and he gets picked up himself on something and he had you know you know from from his from his telling of and he had all the right ids and all of the things that he needed to be down there to illustrate that he had the right to be there and they still arrested him so yeah it's bizarre so he's so he leaves the justice center everything's closed downtown he's hungry he has to leave the downtown zone to get something to eat. He has his ID. He comes back in and they cite him, which mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's very questionable. And then later as, as he's heading back to the justice center to get some more people out of, out on bail, they say, Oh, you got cited earlier today and they arrest him. 
and and nobody can explain it. You know, the yep. mayor and the police chief, when they were idea stream, reached them first about it. They said, oh, we didn't know about it. But that one, this one, and we should mention that, that Anthony is African-American and it just seems like police were targeting. Well, and, you know, it now it sort of rests in the hands of the prosecutor's office to say, you know, are we going to go forward with this or are we going to get rid? You know, are we just going to drop this off? You know, I, I it also rests in the hands of Cleveland City Council, which hasn't mm-hmm. done a damn thing yet to get to the bottom of all of the issues that have arisen out of out of the riot and the aftermath. I mean, they haven't they haven't brought in the police chief to ask him, what was your actual plan? And they have the power to do that. They haven't brought in anybody to say, why did you arrest this guy? What's going on with our curfew enforcement? It's their job to do this. And it's amazing to me how often Kevin Kelly, the council president, has allowed them not to do it. So Clevelanders just don't have the answers. So we got to move on. It's this week in the CLE. What is the controversy about the Ohio National Guard going to Washington to help President Donald Trump prevent violence there? We got two elements to this story, Jane Cahoon. One is one of the people they sent, not so much a good guy. The other is that the people in Washington really don't want these guys there. So let's start with the the bad guy who got sent home. They suspended one of the members after apparently he made some racist comments or postings or something like that. And the FBI is investigating that. But but this person is suspended. And and DeWine really did not DeWine announced this at a at a surprise briefing on Friday. Right. Uh, but he didn't explain what this guy had done, but he had made some sort of uh, racist statement or something on social media. Right. We and we don't have the details and the FBI doesn't want to talk about it. Surprise, surprise. So that's about all we know at this point. Okay, but then on the whole issue of Ohio sending 100 National Guardsmen to Washington, the mayor of Washington, D.C. isn't crazy about that. No, she is not. Muriel Bowser uh, wrote DeWine a letter and, and she's asked this, you know, for all of the National Guard members to be withdrawn from from D.C. She's she called it an invasion and, you know, she supports the peaceful protests. So, as I said, she wrote a letter to DeWine asking that they be called back. However, then on Sunday, the president by tweet, um, you know, he's been under this withering criticism for his militaristic response to to these protests and for, you know, his intent to turn the U.S. military on American citizens and so forth. So he announced by tweet that the, the Guard was going to be withdrawn because because everything is is perfect now, you know, they and um, he, but he did, but he did warn that they could return. OK, I mean, the, the mayor of D.C. is is having her own battle with the president, renaming streets, uh, Black Lives Matter and painting huge letters down one of the streets near the White right. House, the yellow paint. So it's interesting. We Did we ever get a response from DeWine to her request? That, well, no, I mean, it's kind of moot now, but um, no, we didn't because yeah, it would still be interesting. It would still be interesting to hear what he would say if, you know, with the mayor of the city where you sent your troops is saying, we really don't want him here. Would he bring him back or would he 
would he do what the president asked? I hope it comes up in tomorrow's briefing. I oh, guess and then he won't answer. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. First, they told us masks were useless against the coronavirus. Then they told us to wear them to help people around us. Are they now saying that masks protect the people who wear them from the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, the the verdict on masks is ever-changing. What's the latest? The latest is that, yes, they will protect you. Um, The World Health Organization looked at 172 observational studies across 16 countries to try to answer this question, as well as social distancing issues. They were looking at eye protection as well. And they were looking not just at the coronavirus, but also SARS and MERS. So there's a little more nuance to that and and bad time to have these studies. And they wanted to see if people who had coronavirus infected the people close to them, like their family and healthcare workers. And they said, yes, that all masks work to some degree to protect the wearer. Uh, The N95 and surgical masks have a stronger association with protection compared to the single layer cloth masks. And that wearing eye protection might also add. So those plastic face shields. Um, So this wasn't one study that the World Health Organization did, but they looked at a conglomerate of studies to to put out this recommendation. You know, it's interesting. I saw another study out of Italy over the weekend. It's not peer reviewed yet, but one of the things it found is if you're wearing a mask, people keep greater distance from you than if you're not. There was a guy built a piece of equipment and walked around Italy with a mask and without a mask and with a mask, it preserved social distance. So there there might be another benefit to wearing masks is it makes you seem antisocial and people stay clear and don't infect you with the coronavirus. I think it's fascinating. And we, and I never bought it. None of us did. The, the idea that masks wouldn't help. Um, but it's odd that the pivot to get people to wear masks was, well, wear them not because it protects you, but because it protects everybody around you because it contains whatever you're breathing. But that never made sense either. If it would keep you from exhaling the coronavirus into others, then why wouldn't it prevent the coronavirus from coming into you? And now we know we should have been wearing masks from the beginning. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What was the overriding theme heard in all of the Northeast Ohio protests over the weekend about police brutality and racism? Unlike a week ago, when many of the protests were marked with violence and looting and rioting that kind of overtook the narrative, The protests over the past few days have been peaceful, and so the messaging has been pretty clear, Chris Wernowski. What what is it? What are we hearing? I I think you're hearing a lot of discussions about police accountability and and just about how much farther we have to to go before I think a lot of black communities, you know, feel comfortable in and with their relationship. Uh, to law enforcement and how, you know, how these, these organizations have sort of historically uh, treated those communities. And, and, you know, it's interesting to see, I mean, you're seeing this in, I mean, the, the, the size of these, these demonstrations here and, and, and everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's really astounding just how many people are turning up and then you're seeing it in, in small places, in places that you wouldn't expect where, you know, coming out in support of, of African-Americans and black rights is, is a risk, you know, you're seeing it in small towns. And, and, and I think there's, you know, just an overwhelming sense that I think people are, are kind of fed up, you know, between the coronavirus pulling back the, 
the the sort of curtain on a lot of of health and and wellness inequity in this country. I I think you know adding the death of George Floyd on top of that, it was just you know it, it, not to use an old cliche, but it's a perfect storm. I think I think. I think there's a lot of, 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 of people who are just fed up with this kind of stuff. And, and it's really different. You know, the, I, Washington, seeing, Post, the Washington Post reported, they did an analysis and they said, never before have you seen this many demonstrations in this many places in America on the same thing. Is the, the, do you think that this might be what the result of, of the younger generations that are driving this? Um, I mean, is this, is this millennials standing up? I, I, I get that there, there's a wide range of age, but it's such a movement and th- this has been out there all, you know, the racism has been out there for, for all of our lifetimes. What, you know, what's different this time? Why do, and what are people saying about why they think this is different this time? Um, because I think that there's... I think there's an overwhelming frustration with this notion. I, I think, and not to sound ageist, but I think that there's a lot of among, among older Americans and, you know, I'm starting to count myself as one of those. <laughs> um, I think, I, you know, I think that there's the sense that if we all come to the table, that there's going to be some sort of reasonable middle ground that we can all reach. And I think that those efforts have largely still not corrected the systemic issues that exist in. And I think that that, you know, here you have a moment where you have like 40 million people unemployed. You have a deadly virus. You have, you know, image after image of of, of black body. I think there's a sense among younger people that we're at a moment where you have nothing left to lose to fight this fight. And and I think, you know, as radical and weird as some of the things that they're proposing sound, what has worked and what has, you know, what has gotten results? And I think that 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 people are capturing a moment where people are just tired. I mean, the the exhaustion level that you're seeing among people who are still going out in the middle of this dangerous pandemic to fight this. Well, is, it's big I- and it's and it's hard to ignore. And you saw judges in a number of locations stopping the police from using tear gas and rubber bullets, basically saying, hey, if if the if the the price of keeping people from having their faces fractured is some broken windows, so be it. We've never had that. I mean, that that is an extraordinary moment where judges are ordering police to stop using their traditional tools and. It'll it, it'll be interesting to see if legislatures follow through, but we're going to have to move well, on. Yeah, I mean, there's there's I mean, just before we wrap up here, I mean, there's there's a handful of things that have happened just in a week that I never thought would happen. New York is reducing funding for police. L.A. is dramatically reducing fun, funding for police. And Minneapolis is is seriously considering eliminating its police department. They have a veto proof majority of city council people that say we need to look at policing our communities in a different way. And, and a lot of that has to, it's a lot of that is confronting a lot of the power that police. It's about the police unions. The police unions have thwarted reform for years. I mean, you saw what Steve Loomis tried to do in Cleveland. He fought the consent decree every step of the way and became a darling of Donald Trump because of that, because Donald Trump was against those consent decrees. All of the things you're mentioning 
get around the power of police unions. It'll be interesting to see if that starts to develop in Ohio. Like I said, we got to move on. It's this week in the okay. CLE. Why is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine so defensive about how he has locked down and slowly reopened Ohio during the coronavirus pandemic? Jane Cahoon, we had a surprise briefing from the governor on Friday after he said he wouldn't be doing one. And then he opened it with a spirited defense of what he has done. What's going on there? Well, Chris, I think it's because he's a big fan of this podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, he or his staff, they, they must listen because, and they must have heard your rant last week about how, you know, he wasn't being adequately, or he wasn't adequately explaining himself. But anyway, at this surprise briefing Friday before, you know, or as he was announcing all these reopenings of amusement parks and movie theaters and casinos, et cetera, he said, I just want to say a few words here. You know, some people think he should have opened everything up immediately. He said that that makes absolutely no sense at all. And in fact, it would be irresponsible. And he said, Frankly, to do that would be an abandonment of the duty I have as your governor, and I do not intend to do that. He, and then he he went on to give like an example of, say, somebody is getting drunk at home. That's one thing, but then if they get in a car, you know, then they're harming other people. So that's that's the uh, the comparison he he made. Okay, to, I, you know, I, all right. Go ahead. I hope he listens, and I just want to point out. We've been largely supportive of his decisions. What what my rant, as you call it, was about <laughs> was his his re- refusal to explain. Like on on Thursday, he announced he was opening a bunch of stuff, but he didn't mention amusement parks and a couple of things. But he but he, but they wouldn't explain why. And and so I so I've read about half of his thing as look, here's my explanation. I have reasons. But I think he was bucking against something else. What didn't some legislators send him a letter earlier in the week saying Mike DeWine yeah. open everything? So I I think he was responding to a couple of things. And and look, if if my rant is what caused him to explain his thinking, so be it. The power <laughs> of the media. It's this week in the CLE. What can we expect from Cedar Point and other amusement parks when they reopen? Laura Johnston, I'm still kind of having a hard time understanding how you can make Cedar Point safe. Do we have anything yet from Cedar Point or the governor's office about how they will keep people who go there safe from the coronavirus? Well, what was weird was when they linked the governor's office linked to their opening restrictions. They were like the same as they are for retail. So it's really the same thing we've heard over and over again. Stay six feet apart, sanitize surfaces, wear masks if you're an employee. We haven't seen an official plan from Cedar Point. But Susan Glazer has talked to them about some of their intentions. One of the main things is that the amusement park will require reservations so that you won't have a mass of people all driving there on a Saturday morning trying to get in and having to turn some people away. So they're going to limit their capacity um, and then you have to reserve a day. And they're likely going to be a reservation system to ride the rides themselves, maybe like Disney World has with their um, app. So that, which actually makes it sound like a much more pleasant experience to go to Cedar Point if you have a time that you can ride the Magnum rather than waiting in a two-hour line. Uh, They're going to social distance uh, in lines. So that, I mean, that's six feet apart. Um, There'll be cashless transactions wherever possible. So you're not 
handing cash over to buy, you know, those, those little carts, you know, that sell their lemon freezes or whatever. Maybe they'll have an app for that. There's going to be enhanced cleaning measures for rides, restroom, dining facilities, more hand sanitizer everywhere. Uh, these are the the plans. We don't expect them to open till late June or early July because they need a few weeks to get everything in place. Uh, hiring has been an issue. So we'll see exactly what they say. They've been pretty proactive on getting their message out. And Cahoon, I thought it was interesting in the governor's explanation of how this would work, that he was very specific to say, look, these are these are fairly unique enterprises. There, it was amusement parks and a couple other things. And we're relying on them to come to us with uh, the plan that they believe will work. That it wasn't that it, that it that it's less being ordained by the governor. It was more the industry knows what's best. They're bringing it to us, and that that'll be the policy for reopening. He didn't. I guess he. You could say he did that with restaurants and everything else too. It's just this is much more specific. Well, but he also always had health experts working with these working groups. You know, it wasn't just solely the industry people on them. Can I make a comment here about the amusement parks? I thought this was really interesting because, you know, Thursday we talked and there was the lawsuit um, and the idea of these family fun centers being different than amusement parks. And then I, I took my kids mini golfing on Friday to swings and things. And it was in the same working group for the same reopening and it had a big sign that was like, we're reopening everything on Saturday. And they didn't have the go ahead from the governor, but I guess they just decided we're going to go ahead anyway. So um, kind of like the ice rinks, see, right? It's kind of like the ice rinks. And, you know, country clubs was on his list on Thursday, which I thought was bizarre because they had a pool, a golf course and restaurants, all of which had already been allowed to open. So <laughs> all right, and tennis well, courts. We'll see. We'll see how Cedar Point does it. I'm, I'm, I'll be interested to, to watch that it's this week in the CLE. What are Cleveland police officers involved in ending the May 30th riot saying about the city's preparation for the protest that turned violent that day? Chris Ranowski, the police chief and the mayor, keeps saying they had a plan, but Adam Faris did some very good reporting that says maybe not. Right. So he talked to a bunch of officers who basically said, like, we uh, we were unprepared for this. And and it was, you know, if you kind of step back and take a critical look at it, it was pretty obvious that they were kind of scrambling on the ground to begin with. And um, what were the differences you know, that they mentioned between previous protests that they were prepared for in this one? Was it just they didn't have enough people? Right. That's part of it. You know, when you when you look back at a couple of of the bigger demonstrations that we have, the ones that sort of stand out were. Tamir Rice, the, the the outcome in the 137 shots trial, and then the Republican National Convention, which was our our big moment on the stage, and 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 you go back and you look at those and you see where they had police stationed, um, and even where you couldn't see police really. I mean, the, the the thing that these officers told Adam about this week is that you know in in a lot of the protests that they have you really can't see the entire force that they have because they, they tuck them around the corner or they keep them in the justice center underground or, you know, they put them somewhere where they're ready in, in case they need them in case things pop off. And that was not the case in this. I think the, 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 the sense was, I think they went into this thinking that this thing was going to stay peaceful the whole time because they had unarmed, you know, bike officers 
that were basically the only visible law enforcement you could see for hours. And and then by the time it got to the, the Justice Center and people were banging on the front door trying to get in, um, you know, they put those bike cops between the crowd and the store and even er, er, between the crowd and the Justice Center. And even they got over. So they ended up retreating back into the Justice Center because it got really heated. Do you think this falls back on, though? that because previous protests just weren't violent, they supposed Cleveland would not go violent, and so they just never took it seriously, even though, you know, city after city. I so. I mean, look, we, I mean, look, we even talk about this sometimes, where it's just like, you know, we don't, I mean, like, even in Tamir Rice, I mean, it was surprising because things had gotten really, really heated in Ferguson, and we weren't that far away from that. And, and when... You know, when we covered the Tamir Rice stuff, we were we were personally we were like, wow, like, like what's different about these cities? I mean, we wrote stories about it, and and so it, it it's I I get it. Like, there's this, there's this sense that that just doesn't happen here, and this but this was different. You know, I think you know Cleveland had a good couple of days to look at what was going around going on around the country. I mean, even nearby in Columbus, you know, it was you know the 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 temperature a week ago on, on the 30th. I mean, it was very different and, 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 and things have changed pretty dramatically in a week, but you know, to, to not look at what was going on and, 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 and at least think to maybe put some barricades around the justice center. And, and so, I mean, there's just like a lot of little things they probably could have done that could have avoided a lot of, of what happened, a lot of the damage, a lot of the arrests, a lot of the injury, you know, it's because what happens is, you know, when you, when you have a bunch of police scrambling to 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 get order, you know, it, it I believe it it leads to a lot of escalation, and and I think that you know there there probably could have been a, a less you know violent way for that to sort of come to an to a head, and and it just it I mean, and even these police officers said it just it 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 we were scrambling to sort of get control of it, yeah. and I think that that. That's where you have problems. There's a good piece uh, the, yeah, that Adam put really together. People should go back and read it. It's on cleveland.com. Hey, maybe city council will start getting answers to some of these questions because it is its job. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, that does it. Lots to talk about from the weekend. And tomorrow we'll all be roasting. Laura Johnston, you think people are going to want to go back to work in their offices because it's <laughs> air conditioned? Between kids and uh, uh, heat. Yeah, maybe. It'll be interesting to see what happens. All right, 92 and humid. That's going to be tough. All right. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for listening. This week in the CLE will return tomorrow.